Welcome to today's edition of Daytime's Daytime Dialogues. It's a pleasure today to welcome a very prominent figure in our Jewish world, Rav Moshe Lichtenstein. Rav Lichtenstein is the Rosh Yeshiva, co-Rosh Yeshiva in Yeshiva Taratzion. And since 2008, he is a person who was born in America, made Aliyah together with his family when his father, the late Rosh Hashiva Rav Aaron Lichtenstein and Yibada Lachaim Tovim, his mother, Dr. Lichtenstein, who we've had the opportunity to host, has went on Aliyah. And since then, he has risen through the ranks of the Yeshiva world to become one of the leading voices within our Datitzioni camp, our modern Orthodox camp as well. It's a great pleasure to welcome Rabbi Lichtenstein and thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you for inviting me. It's good to go to Chicago without a 15-hour trip. <laughs> <laughs> yes, well, people may not realize your Chicago connections. I still have a picture of your grandfather, Zal, when he was a teacher at Ida Crown. In those days, the Chicago Jewish Academy, it's on the wall in the new building of Ida Crown. And uh, your father also was a student for a period of time when, you're, when he lived here in Chicago. So you're a Chicagoan, even though you may not root for the Cubs. We'll have to deal with that at a different occasion. <laughs> Thank you for joining me. So in, let me start out with some little bit of heavier things to begin with for a moment. Um, Rabbi Lichtenstein, a few weeks back during the ele American elections, um, you voiced some opinion on politics. Uh, it was an article that made it into the press but I just, I want to talk about a little bit about what's your feeling in general? Should Rabbanim, should Rosh Hashivas generally get involved in politics or is it something that we hold off for just unique times? Like most things in life, uh, I, I believe it's a dialectic. Or one of my favorite quotes is something I saw my uncle Chaim Soloveitchik quoted in one of his articles. Uh, it's a quote from Samuel Butler. Only the extremes are logical, but they're absurd. Meaning, if you want to be totally consistent, logically consistent, either a rabbi should never, ever address the contemporary issues, or you should do it every, every shenim v'chamishim. You should do it every, you know, twice a week. Uh, in real life, now it's, the point is that what's absurd is that life doesn't run by logic. Life is somewhere in between, because life has so many different principles at it. So uh, we, we, we somehow muddle through and we adapt and we, and we balance. On one level, I think it's inconceivable that a rabbi or any, uh, any person should be disengaged from uh, the world of action, from the world we live in. We have a moral responsibility. Moshe Rabbeinu uh, devoted his best years to uh, being engaged in the world of action. He secluded in the Midbar, for, in the wilderness for a long time, but then he Kashbrok dragged him back into the world of action. And uh, it's inconceivable a person. It's inconceivable a person should not be engaged in, uh, in, in morality. Uh, let me remind you that Aristotle puts the politics as the sequence as a sequence to the ethics. Uh, on the other hand, what Ramban says about Hanukkah, the Ramban says that the Hashemonaim were punished because Kohanim should not be uh, politicians, or they should not be political figures. And there's a, there's a serious danger that if you are too much engaged in, in, the, in, in the world of politics and action with all of the, it's like this, with all the use of force and, uh, and all, all of the trickery and, uh, and, and other uh, and, and the political means, 
that at the end of the day, uh, the spirituality gets lost. In other words, the, the truth of politics is not the truth of the Beit Midrash or, or the Beit Knesset. And it's, it's a very slippery slope that uh, we shouldn't be too engaged in, 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 the, in the here and now instead of talking about the bigger and eternal issues. So I think, you know, you know, once every so often you should do it and the rest of the time try to steer clear. And, and in the yeshiva today, is the yeshiva is up and running and Talmidim are there, every shirim are going on. How's, what's happening now in the yeshiva? Sure, Baruch Hashem is up and running. Uh, we have all kinds of restrictions, capsules or pods, whatever you call them, uh, which uh, the necessities, on one hand, obviously creates certain difficulties. I, I can't host uh, students at home. Having a personal conversation is more difficult uh, when you have barriers uh, and the like. On the other hand, I think something deeply educational, they should know that you learn even from difficulties. And previous generations learned in much more difficult conditions. Uh, the idea that you only learn because we can provide you with catered meals and, uh, and, wa and laundry service and everything's perfect and every book you want is at your fingertips and... Uh, I think that's uh, uneducational. It's, it's, it's good for them to know that you have to learn in, um, under such conditions. Additionally, my experience since we reopened, I feel the, the chevre I felt, at least until now, I don't know how much longer this can last, sense of heroism. They've risen to the occasion that they're learning, uh, that they're learning in unique times. This is not just like another year. These are special times. And I, I, I also think that they, they recognize the deep truth that in such times, you know that Torah has to be crucial to your lives. Uh, and the Ramban says there's a unique mitzvah, there's a special mitzvah to daven in times of distress. And if you look carefully at the Ramban, his formulation includes Talmud Torah. The Ramban believes there's a mitzvah to study in times of distress. And I think deep down, they, they can't articulate this, but deep down, they really feel this. And I can say that I, I also think that in uncertain times when, when everything's in flux and you don't really feel uh, anchored, that Torah is an anchor. They feel that Torah is giving them some permanence in a world which is, is confusing. So it helps them. I can say like this. They know Masechus Kiddush and Barabasa, we study in the, in the summer and now, no less good. Or no, they, they've got, they know the sukkahs just as well as anybody who studied here 10 years ago or 20 years ago. But your idea of the Ramban, of, uh, of being always in that distress, that's also your grandfather, the Rav Zatzal, talked about that might explain why there's no machlokas when it comes to davening, whether it's a Deiraisa or the Rabbanon, biblical or rabbinic, because we're always finding ourselves in a level of distress. And so therefore, practically... It's true. I, I've, I've, I won't get involved in a halachic discussion now. I have some doubts about the, the interpretation in those sources, but okay, yeah. <laughs> The spiritual truth is there. Uh, he said it at, a, at an RCA convention many years ago. And I know it's also written in a number of places. So it's fascinating. I, um, the, talking about your grandfather's itself, you, you left Israel to come back to study with him. Is that at Yeshiva, didn't you? So like this, I, I came out at a young age. And the truth is, the only real difficulty of going early at the time was not the you know being disconnected from uh, from American culture or American consumerism. Even though I, I was ten years old, and yes, you know I wanted to know what's going on with the, not the Chicago Cubs, or other at least other clubs at least. Uh, and uh, you know I was, I was detached from at the time there was no internet, there was no radio. 
literally you could hear once a year what happened in the baseball world. And when, when the World Series was over, the, the Vice of America would once a year give you an update. And uh, of course, you know, uh, what you have now, communications wasn't there, but that, that, that really didn't matter. What didn't matter was, was really being disconnected from family. And the Rav wasn't traveling any place for whatever the reasons are, but he was not traveling any place. Um, so uh, that obviously created a certain difficulty. I was young and my parents, I assume, was, was more difficult emotionally. But uh, what they did was I came back for summers. I came back uh, after 10th grade, uh, not just to visit. I, I came to learn with the Rav. I spent the whole summer living with the Rav in Maimonides. It was a wonderful experience. Um, and then my father sent me back for a for a year after high school, between high school and and I begin, beginning has there. I was I was in New York for a year. I think what, what people never re- realize is the um, my, my father. It was it was it was almost a sacrifice. It was his idea. I never would have dreamed of doing that. It was his idea. He initiated it. He based he put every he tied all the strings together. He was his rebbe. He looked up to. He was. He was his rebbe. Everything. He considered the Godel Ador. No, the Godel Ador. He considered Mikdoli had Doros, and nevertheless, relinquishing control over molding my uh, my learning uh, was not easy for him. It was. Uh, it was. He knew it was the right thing, but um, but he did it. And I spent a year by the Rav uh, in 1979. This was this was the tail end where the rabbi was still teaching uh, in the full steam. It was, it was, I saw it's like this. I I, I saw them, my father said to me when I said the, that you'll see the rabbi from behind, not from up front, the way the Gemara says about Rida Nasi. And um, then I came back for for another summer or for, for two other summers, but I came back for the last summer the rabbi was teaching, and then I was really sent. Not some, not only to learn. I was really sent to help out, taking care of him. My brother had to leave. I was really sent to, to basically to to help him out with, with what he needed. I went to have Mitalas at Sal before and to say goodbye. And he said to me, "Godol shimusha muda." That serving a person, interacting with a person, is more important than actually learning. And he was so right. I, in a sense, a good deal of my relationship with the Rav and on the human level. Was was then more so when the Rebbe was busy teaching and I was a bit overwhelmed and I was it was uh, it's a crazy relationship when the last summer this was 1984 uh, it was the last summer we taught he was much more free, he was much more open he was much more reminiscing you could talk to him about the past he was he was he was much more mellow and uh, I went to huge plus I, I had the privilege of having Harusa we used to study uh, the entire summer we studied Ramban and the Torah. It was the most amazing thing ever happened to me. Ramban is so flexible. He goes in and out between Kabbalah and language and halacha. And Bamidbar is perfect for this. Watching the Rav teach Ramban was stunning. Is, and in terms of the Rav, the Rav not traveling, later obviously he wasn't well. But the Rav, besides his one visit to Israel when he was a candidate for the chief rabbi, he never went back. Was there a reason for that? There's so much speculation. You can write a doctor in the speculation. Uh, I can tell you, you know, my, my, what I felt when I was experiencing. Uh, but this is, uh, you know, if you want to a speculative, uh, the, the, way I, the way I view it, I'll say like this. I think it had a lot to do also with personality and personal circumstances. It was less ideological. The Rev was very much interested 
at least when I knew him, very much interested in Zionism and was going on in Israel. He was given he was given a free subscription to that so far, if anybody remembers what that was. And he would read it. He would sit there and he would actually read it. He was up to date on you know Mizrahi politics and uh, what was going on in Israel. And he would meet with cabinet ministers who came to visit him. Uh, if you want to tell a music story uh, later. Uh, but he, um, so I think he was engaged. But the way I view it in, in the early years, people didn't travel in the 1940s, 50s, didn't travel because it was bold, because it was extremely expensive. It was also not part of the, uh, like it wasn't an option you considered like, Think nowadays a person says to himself, "Why haven't I been in Israel for ten in the last ten years?" It wasn't the kind of question which was being asked. People were not mobile, and then when it came, then my grandmother was ill, and uh, her illness consumed him for uh, many years. And then I feel the I think what I feel is that the, the, the Rav is very he was timid. And surprisingly enough, you have to be a courageous lion sometimes publicly. He was also very person, very timid and very uh, almost shy, you could say. Uh, my mother likes to say, the ref can never tell you anything personal unless there are 2,000 people in the room. <laughs> and uh, he was, I think, he was, I think you had, had he come after being here for 30 years, being the Rav, being uh, after the Six Day War, I suspect with a huge commotion in the press and, uh, you know, in, in religious Zionism, I think he shied away from that commotion. He didn't want, uh, I didn't think he wanted to engage himself with that kind of balagan, so to speak. Um, and the sudden, so in a sense, it was some kind of inertia almost, which I think kept him. Uh, I, I should add, my grandmother, who may have been more proactive in that regard, my grandmother wasn't. Uh, she was either ill, and then she, and then she passed away. And I, I once heard my father say that someone once said, "It's a quote from a quote, I think, uh, that the Rebbe never came. He wouldn't have known which side of Chovyafu to live, meaning where to join the Haredi, the non-Haredi part." I don't know, the Rav I knew was less ambivalent. It was, it was not that ambivalent, but I did think, you know, he, he also, let's be honest, he viewed his good that was going on, he thought it was more petty and more um, and more closed-minded. That should prevent a visit, but I did think it colored some of his attitude. Uh, he, the, the, the irony, of course, is that his... Um, his, his mishpacha went to Israel were uh, not the most close-minded of the family. Uh. And you you mentioned that your father, when when he when your father sent him, he gave up the opportunity to help mold your learning. Now, I, I've heard that while you were in high school and your brothers were in high school, your sister was in high school, your father would spend regular times that he would come to Nativ Meir to learn with you and would leave the yeshiva for that. Is that is that true? Is that what he would do? It's true. The final, the final point is not quite, but he invested a huge amount of time learning with us, a huge amount of time. And uh, matter of fact, after he came in Aliyah, some kid, some kid in the yeshiva approached him and said, "I'd like to have a chavrusa with you." The rosh yeshiva, you know, and uh, I'd like to have a chavrusa with you, but I realize you're very busy, so I have a great idea. I'll, I'll tutor your children, and. Uh, and, and and the time that you'll be freed up, you can then have a chavrusa with me. I mean, if, if looks could kill, this guy would not be alive today. <laughs> <laughs> My father was, uh, you know, he, he quoted it for years as being like the most insensitive, like uh, what a 20-year-old bachelor could think about raising children. So he put a huge amount of time. When I went to Nativ Mir, he used to come study with me once a week. We would study empty besmerdusha in the evening hours. We would study Baba Kama. Two years later, and it was when I was in 11th grade, my brother, my brother began ninth grade. 
so uh, originally he was going to come one night a week for me, one night a week for my brother. At some point, he simply decided that we'd stay together. So he came two nights. <laughs> Rather than taking one night for two of us, he gave two nights to, uh, if I remember. Um, and then at, at, when I was beginning 12th grade, we had a bit of an argument what to, what to learn. I went to study one thing. My brother went to study something else. And um, the kids, my father thought that my choice was, my, my choice was, was more appropriate. So we studied together what I wanted. And he, and he then studied with my brother. Additionally, what my brother wanted on his own. So uh, he put a lot of, a huge amount of time into this. Uh, is that the same kind of thing that your grandfather, Dr. Lichtenstein, had also done with your father? Is it, was it a tradition or was your father's approach? In, in the, 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 rough still, the rough studied with his children. I can't, I can't, I don't know exactly, you know, exactly how intense or not it was, but the rough studied with his children. The rough then studied with, with, with his grandchildren also. With my cousins, he put the rough put a huge, uh, huge amount of effort into both of my cousins. Uh, when I was there in the summers, I, I, I would join them also. We said, but, uh, but that's like, no, obviously I was there very little, but with, with my two cousins, he put a huge amount of time. It meant also your father's father. Did he also do, the, did your grandfather, Dr. Lichtenstein learn with, with Reverend Lichtenstein? Like, like your father learned with you? I know my, it's like this. I know that my grandmother certainly did when he, when he was young. Um, I assume my grandfather, so I don't know for sure. I, I know the stories I've heard were most of my grandmother, uh, but that was a young, very young age. Uh, but then listen, yes, yes, you know, in Chicago, they were not too rich, if I'll say it very mildly. Yeah, so but you know, that he had a private tutor. I mean, it's... Uh, the story I know of your grandmother was the reason that the Lichtenstein family left Chicago, that she wasn't happy with the education. And uh, there was a... That's true. She was... A, <laughs> She was a Litvak who really pushed her son. Yeah. Uh, my, 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 I think my grandfather was less in that regard. And like by her, she, she had the Litvish, uh, you know, sense of nobility, and um, she was she from, really pushed him a lot. She was from Tells, or was she had studied in Tells? No, she was she was born in Tells. Her Tells. father was the Menahel, she was Tells, and the, and uh, she after he after after her mother passed away at a young age. She would spend time, she spent a lot of time by, by a sister in Kovna, and then she was in Kelim. She really, she was part of the whole Litvish, she was a first-name basis with her footner. Matter of fact, when the Panavizharov came to Brooklyn in the 1950s not to fundraise, so she took one, she took my father one Shabbos, who was an up-and-coming star in Chaim Berlin at the time, Chaim Berlin, why you, but she knew that my father was an up-and-coming star. She took him to the Panavizharov and said to him, uh, this is my son. You know, he's a, he's a real Talmud Chacham. So he looked at her, whatever. He's whatever. You know, he's a, he's a great student or whatever. He looked at her and said to her, "How do you know? Do you give her bechina?" <laughs> yeah. Um, it, it just to shift again one more gear. By the way, you said there was a story you had to tell us. A fun, a funny story you had mentioned. Oh, uh, I don't want to miss out on a good story. Uh, okay, that's. Um, he was an Israeli cabinet minister. Who uh, you may figure out, may not, but uh, you have to be of a certain age, I guess. When he became, when he when he was appointed, there were a lot of there were a lot of uh, jokes against him. Some of them racist. Uh, there were a bunch of jokes, you know, uh, Polish jokes, I guess you could call them, uh, which made fun of his intellect, of his uh, whatever. Uh, he's an intelligent person, but the, the jokes were not too uh, nice. My brother was seven years old. He uh, he enjoyed these jokes immensely. 
he spent the whole summer amusing the Rav with, with all these jokes about this cabinet minister. Uh, you know, of, of the side, you know, I, I'll give you like one, one example was he, uh, he, his wife calls and says to him, uh, they said, be careful, they said on the radio that there's a, there's a maniac driver who's, who's driving against, uh, he, he's driving against the direction of the highway. He says, one driver, there are a thousand against the direction. These are the kinds of jokes that were going around. And then my, my brother told me to the Rav, he's very cute, he was seven years old, the Rav loved it. A year later, this, this person asked to meet the Rav. He's at a cabinet minister, he came to visit America. He asked to meet the Rav. So he goes to Boston, he says to the Rav, um, my name is so-and-so, and you may not have heard of me. So he says, of course I heard about you. My grandson told me all about you. <laughs> oh boy, that, that uh, I remember who the minister was. But we'll leave okay, so uh, I assumed you would. Uh... <laughs> to go a little more seriously for a moment, I've been reading, I don't know if you have that, on uh, Jeffrey Wolf, who is a very prominent professor at Bar-Ilan and a great proponent, he was a Talmud of the Rav, and a great proponent of what we'll call modern orthodoxy, for lack of a better term, has become a bit disillusioned with where we're at nowadays. And he's been writing a lot of things that, you know, we may be losing our direction. In Israel, what's your feeling about the Datilu Umi community? Is it something that's getting stronger? Is it, is it in the right direction? Is it, are there things that we need to work on? Things that you feel that um, can be better within the Datilu Umi community? I could go on, you know, for the few hours on this. Uh, the answer is, look, the, the, the on one hand, I think you have to, you have to see the lights, not the shadows also. It's um, the Tilumi community, it's very vibrant, it's very much in flux. There are all kinds of things going on. It's probably the stew is, is boiling over in many different directions, probably more so than the States. Uh, there's, there's, I think it's being pulled in many different directions. Not all of them positive, uh, but the, the very fact that there's so much going on, that there's... Uh, it's it's not static. It's very dynamic, and uh, when they're dynamics, they often go in. You know, some are more positive, some are less. Um, I, I think like this. Uh, there's a serious problem with um, within the religious Zionism at the moment, or what you call classic, because it's splintering into into different elements. First of all, the amount of Gemara study, the level of Gemara study. Uh, the place of Gemara, Torah within the curriculum, it's less and less uh, the, the standards that the government demands of Yishuot Bichonet are, are less and less. The level of knowledge, we, we've got interview season again now. It's depressing every year to see, uh, see kids who don't, uh, you know, the original interview I gave was not about politics. It was about the, the original interview in Hebrew spoke about that they're getting a very, very low, low calorie uh, diet. It's, there, it's, it's, it's low fat, it's a low fat diet what we're feeding them in Gemara, unfortunately. And I think a lot has to be done in that. Um, where, does that and deep, where does that come from? Why are... comes, I'll, tell, I'll tell you exactly where it comes from. It comes from it comes from many places, but the main place is that in America, because the Rub is the father of, 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 of modern Orthodox religious Zionism, so the main religious focus or you know, expression is Torah is Gemara, is Torah the Shema. So we have in common with the Haredim 
and then and then the modern orthodox the religious expression the center religious expression is uh is mainly totally shema you could argue tefillah versus torah but you know the torah is, is the, over here you have many other outlets you have eretz israel you have the army which is a form of eretz israel no, it's history um and, uh, and, and, and on its deepest level, if Cook came and said that God is revealing himself in history in front of our eyes, so I can now engage God, not through Torah, I can, I can engage him through history. Uh, that's on one, uh, on another level, I, I think it's because they're engaged with Israeli society. I'll make a quick point on that in a moment. Uh, and Israel, you know, if you feel part of Israeli society, I think if, if the, the Israeli, the from Israeli feels much more part of Israeli society than the from American feels part of American Jewish, this amorphous American, unless you're in Federation or whatever, you don't really have much contact. Uh, and here we see this one. So when it's part of one society, the interaction and the influence uh, is, uh, is much greater. Thirdly, um, in, in individual is on the rise. And individuals on the rise, all kinds of um, so Gemara doesn't matter. You know, Gemara doesn't cut it for me. I, I feel it's boring. I'd rather do other things. Tanakh is more interesting. Um, and there are many other options. Uh, and this, now, additionally, this is part of the, the second point. Israel is undergoing, I think, a, ve a very serious transformation, which people are not always alert to yet, which is. Once upon a time, it's clear that Israel's identity was a Jewish identity. We had an Arab minority. There was an Arab identity, Arab, Muslim, Palestinian, and you had a Jewish identity. Now, and this is, I'm talking literally two, three, four, five years, the Israeli identity is becoming, is basically the Israeli and Jewish identity are splitting off. You now have an Israeli identity which is independent. I don't mean about you know uh, individual. I mean a mainstream. Uh, how does this express itself? It expresses itself in the integration of Arabs into Israeli society. They feel part of society. You have Arabs who are willing to be judges, who are willing to be ambassadors for instead of Israel uh, overseas. You have Arabs willing to play on, on, on the Israeli national soccer team. They're willing to represent Israel uh, internationally. Uh, you see how they integrated into into the workforce. Um, you have another. I'll uh, uh, take another example. There was there was a big controversy here a few weeks ago. Should there, should Sahel bury non-Jewish soldiers in a military cemetery? If you think about it deep down, what does that mean? Deep down, it means what's your primary identity? Jewish or Israeli? A soldier killed in action. Even if he's not Jewish, he's Israeli, but he's not Jewish. And if you view a cemetery as a basic form of identity, so once upon a time we said, sorry, but no, you have separate uh, plots for Jews and non-Jews because our primary identity is Jewish. So they say, no, our primary identity is Israeli. And if you're a bona fide Israeli because you served in the army, so we will now bury you, uh, Jews and non-Jews, together. And we won't bury someone who wasn't in the army in a military cemetery, and, and so on and so forth. And the, the whole gear issue is going to come crashing. This is basically, this is part of the issue. At the end of the day, when it was Jewish identity, so Geirus, the way it's traditionally Jewish, was what, what mattered. And the Israeli Supreme Court is going to change that pretty soon, I, I would assume, because 
the Geus now has become a vehicle for Israeli identity. And for Israeli identity, so halachic parameters don't, don't matter anymore. So that ultimately is tying into the Tzioni Dati, the religious Zionist world, because pulling people towards Israeli identity versus Jewish identity? It's like this. So religious Zion is being torn apart now by those who are unwilling to give recognition to this, those, but, but see, deep like this, deep down, everybody wants that Jewish and Israeli identity should be the same. So one group is fighting ferociously not to undo it. The problem is, is that reality is, seems to be flying in their faces. Um, the other group is willing to compromise, but when you, once you compromise, you, you're paying, uh, was, if you want to accept reality, uh, to what point? It's uh, I, I don't know for sure exactly where this will all this will lead us, but I, I do feel that this is another problem which is not people don't articulate it enough. But it's, this is a, a deep down going to be a major problem. But and be on a happier note for a moment, the yeshiva Haritzion Baruch Hashem has always been this wonderful bridge between the intensity of Torah learning. And the involvement in, in Jewish society, Israeli society, Tzionut. And uh, with you at the head, it's a privilege to be able to speak with you. Our time is really wrapping up. And I, uh, I want to thank you. I want to thank you for your leadership. Uh, we have communicated offline via emails when I um, really feel that, thank God, you have been a voice that we need to hear. And I hope that voice will continue. And I thank you for everything you do. And please, on behalf of all of Chicago, keep on leading the yeshiva l'shemu l'tiferet and also send our regards to your mother, who we treasure greatly from her time teaching in Chicago, visiting in Chicago. And one time, I think I'll give you the whole story about when I had the privilege of taking her on a boat tour in Chicago as well, which you probably remember. <laughs> Ramosha, it is, thank you for your time. And uh, please. Thank you very, very much. And uh, I think you overstepped the case, but, but uh, thank you very, very much. And uh, I get more comments in Chicago than I get in the Yeshiva. Should I get complaints? <laughs> <laughs> well, because we appreciate. We don't have to worry about the capsules that you have to worry about each and every day. Thank you so very much. Thank have you very much. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Have a good Hanukkah, everybody. Hanukkah, bye-bye.